welcome everybody. Um, hope you've had a great year. My name is Paul O'Halloran and uh, welcome to our Denton's final IR Insights for 2023, uh, our year in review and 2024 in preview. So really happy to be joined by my colleagues, Nick Linky in Adelaide. Hi, Nick. And Ruth Knocker, partner in the Employment and Safety Team in Sydney. How are you, Ruth? Hi, Paul. I'm well, thanks. Probably like our listeners, we're all really excited that it's the end of the year and only, what, 10, 12, 12 days to go till Christmas. So um, exciting times ahead, though, because we've got a, a smorgasbord of uh, industrial relations changes, some that unexpectedly came through the parliament last week and more on uh, on the horizon for, for next year. So we're going to talk about some of those uh, issues today. Uh, some of the trends we've seen with the matters coming through from our clients this year and some predictions for 2024. Uh, okay, so before we get into, into that, um, we've got a, a message from Auntie Monia. We should have a message from Auntie Manya. Nangamanlari, I'm Auntie Manya, and on behalf of Dentons and everyone here today, I would like to recognise the stories, traditions, and living cultures of the land on which we meet. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and their continued connections to land, sea, and community. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. Nangaman Ladi. Okay, so look, really so much to talk about. The question is really where to start. So what I might do, uh, uh, Nick and Ruth, starting with you, Ruth, is perhaps pose two questions. First question, what were the key employment law issues that you saw in your practice in 2023? And what trends do you see on the horizon for 2024? Take us away, Ruth. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Paul, would you like me just to deal with the trends and then I'll hand it over to, to you after that? Yeah, for sure. Okay, great. Um, so the, um, the first, um, I guess, issue that, or one of the main issues that I saw this year was the return of award compliance and underpayment issues. So um, some of you may recall in those sort of heady days before we were hit by the pandemic, um, there was a period of, I guess, six to 12 months where we were seeing constant headlines of big corporates who were um, caught up in underpayment issues. And then the pandemic came along and obviously there were bigger things for um, companies, to, companies and employees to think about. Well, what we have seen in the last uh, year is that um, this has returned as a burning issue. Um, it's back in the consciousness of employers um, and also employees. And this much is um, reinforced by um, the Fair Work Ombudsman's work in this area, which continues to be significant. So just a couple of stats from the Fair Work Ombudsman's most um, recent annual report um, in the year 2022-2023, two 
they recovered $509 million for um, uh, 200, around 250,000 underpaid employees. Um, significantly, 10 years or, or so ago, a lot of the work that was done by the Fair Work Ombudsman was really targeting, I guess, smaller companies, really recalcitrant employers who didn't care at all about awards or compliance and largely concerned vulnerable employees. But what we are seeing again is that Fair Work Ombudsman is really targeting big corporates, universities, and this is also reflected in their stats with $317 million being recovered for more than 160,000 workers across universities and the large corporate sector. We're also seeing headlines returning relating to big corporates who are um, reporting underpayment issues to the Ombudsman. Um, there were 81 prosecutions and uh, 977 compliance activities. Um, so in addition to the work of the Fair Work Ombudsman, we're also seeing this as a fairly significant policy area for both state and um, the federal government. So Queensland and um, Victoria have wage theft laws, which include imprisonment for individuals and really significant fines um, for corporations. And that is being um, that has been reflected in recent changes um, uh, at a federal level as well, with bringing in um, wage theft provisions. Now, obviously, for those most people who are on the call today, that wage theft is really it's not it's not about sort of inadvertent failure to comply with an award. It's about those who are um, deliberately ignoring their obligations to employees and engaging in serious contraventions. But what the work of the Ombudsman does tell us, um, and also the, the, I guess, the focus on, continued focus on wage theft, it's a reminder to all of us that this issue is not going away and um, employers need to be regularly engaging in audits and reviews of their um, payroll making sure that they're staying on top of any changes to the awards, changes to pay rates, and making sure that they are compliant with their obligations. Um, so another I, issue- I guess just on that, Ruth, um, uh, you, you mentioned the, the, the penalties and imprisonment in various different states. Um, and this might be something you're gonna to refer to as well, but um, obviously last week, wage theft laws were passed as well, which, um, include imprisonment of up to 10 years for um, individuals who might be accessories to um, underpayment of, of, of wages. Is, is that something that our clients should be preparing for and concerned about? Well, I think the, the as I said, I don't think it's a going to be a um, a sort of a, a significant burning issue that means, you know, with sort of sudden sort of panic stations and a need for training or any of those sort of things, because the, the laws are really about targeting really serious contraveners, people who are aware, who are aware of the fact that there is underpayment going, uh, underpayment going on and refusing to do anything about it. Um, and so inadvertent sort of, you know, failure to, um, uh, I, I guess, apply a, um, a penalty rate or an increase is unlikely to be something um, significant to, to worry about. Um, but nevertheless, it's what this does demonstrate, though, is that it, it is, as I said, important for organisations to um, be regularly checking in 
with um, payroll and, and also with managers, making sure that proper records are kept about your times that are worked and also making sure that um, your people are properly trained and staying on top of um, the, the the regular changes to awards as they come through. Because, you know, they, as you know, these things are regular award, uh, awards are regularly um, reviewed. There are regular changes that come through. And so it's important that this is not a set and forget task by, by employers, that they stay on top of things and regularly conducting reviews and audits. Yeah, I think something too to remember in that sort of space, which is not necessarily deliberate or intentional wage theft, but it's a situation where you may have an offset clause in an employment contract and an over, uh, above award salary for individuals and the assumption that that covers all overtime that people work, when in fact, if there's no reconciliation of hours worked against that salary, that can become an inadvertent um, underpayment. So I, I see that quite a bit, uh, aside from perhaps defective offset clauses in employment contracts. So something to think about, because I don't think all of our clients really think, well, you know, we pay $10 above the award and so people can do work on Saturday if necessary and do a certain amount of overtime throughout the year, but it's going to be important to keep track of all of that moving forward. I think that's right, Paul, and that and the other um, important factor in all of that is record keeping, because you you really you really need to be knowing the overtime your employees are doing because if you don't have proper records, that's no excuse, right? So staying yeah. on top of those records as well as as you say, making sure well we're paying an annual salary, but is this really meeting all of our requirements? Exactly. Okay, so another um, sort of issue that has arisen this year, sort of more as a part of um, discussions rather than any sort of um, litigation or anything like that, is around um, the resistance to returning to the office and associated risks. So we, we talked about this at the start of the year, Paul, in one of our very first um, webinars. And what has developed since then is we've seen that some employers through the process of um, bargaining have been agreeing hybrid arrangements with their uh, employees. Um, so hybrid arrangements being something on the lines of 50% working from home, 50% working in the office. Um, the Fair Work Commission has announced that it is going to be canvassing employers um, about um, the inclusion of working from home provisions in awards. Um, there's been some unions, for example, the FSU has been um, engaged in an active campaign to resist directions given to employees to return to the office even 50% of the time. But in terms of the litigation in the area, it actually represents, I guess, some good news for employers and something that was um, sort of consistent with um, the our messaging at the start of the year, which is that the pandemic was uh, sort of a special case, but it didn't create any, um, unless there was a specific change to the contract of employment, it didn't sort of create this general right now that employees can just work from home um, and and resist any direction from employers to um, uh, get back into the office. So there's been a couple of cases where um, employees have 
um, had their employment terminated because they decided to um, insist on working from home, refuse directions to return to the office, and um, though the decision to terminate their employment has been upheld, there's been a general protections claim where an employee um, asserted that they had a workplace right to work from home and the court said, uh, no, there's no such workplace right. Um, and there's also, we've seen uh, the, the changes that were made to the Fair Work Act, which provided the um, Fair Work Commission with more power um, in relation to uh, flexible working arrangements and arbitrating disputes about flexible working arrangements an employer had declined an employee's request to work from home on a full-time basis that was subject to arbitration and the Fair Work Commission upheld the decision of the employer to um, decline that arrangement. So um, I guess what we're seeing is for the most part employers and employees are, are, are content to sort of deal with this themselves but if we're sort of moving into um, a new environment where employers are increasingly thinking, I really want people to be back in the office, sort of closer to sort of 75% of the time. Um, the, the good news for employers is that they um, should have the support to be able to do that. Mm, it's definitely something that comes up quite a bit. Um, I know some of our international clients have asked for global return to office policies. It's very difficult to mandate um, because, you know, individual circumstances of everybody is important. And I think, Ruth, too, sometimes employers forget in this whole return to office um, environment that there are protections, obviously, under the Fair Work Act for flexible working arrangements that many, not, not everybody, but many categories of employees have. Um, and those overzealous employers that say everyone back in the office 100%, may be breaching discrimination or uh, fair work flexible right obligations. So it's important to consider all of those in the context of uh, return to office policies, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, and the, the final thing I might just mention is um, investigations um, have been on the rise again, um, and we will be, I think, providing um, a webinar or, uh, in midway through next year, I think, on investigations. Um, so they are still a really important tool for employers to determine a range of issues, particularly the more serious complaints. However, I have seen this year, and I conduct investigations on a, on a pretty regular basis, and um, it does seem to me that the stress they cause for not only those who are responding to allegations, not only those who make complaints, but all the witnesses who are caught up in it as well. Um, they really are causing quite a lot of stress for employees. So I would say that it, um, whilst investigations are really important, it's always um, a good idea for employees to take a step back, have a look at the complaint and, you know, perhaps think of some alternative ways for um, managing the particular, particular complaint. As I say, it will not always be appropriate to have an alternative means of addressing it, but it's always good to sort of stop and and think about, you know, what what's what's best for everyone in this scenario. Hmm. Yeah, totally agree. 
I've supervised and conducted many, many investigations over the years, and generally nobody's happy at the end of an investigation I've, I've found. And um, as they tend to deal with the most serious sorts of issues that happen in the workplace, um, they can be really destructive uh, in terms of the maintenance of ongoing work, working relationships, what happens to the participants after the findings are um, are made and uh you know more often than not somebody ends up leaving after the investigation so certainly a last resort but i agree with you and certainly for our education clients there's a um with reportable conduct there's a statutory obligation to to conduct them um so difficult to escape in some sectors thanks well, ruth thanks paul oh that Put Nick, Nick, Nick can be in the hot seat now. Oh, thanks, Ruth. Um, it, it was a hot seat for me for a moment there because my microphone stopped working, so I managed to revive it. But if it goes oh, off, I'll yeah. quickly handball back to Ruth. Um, look, I, I think there's probably um, two sort of underlying themes from my experience this year uh, in this area. The first one is it just sort of seems like the last six months there's been a lot of unrest and you know i mean amongst employees but also within employers like there just seems like there's a strange environment people have been becoming a bit more testy so we're seeing a lot more like bullying claims against managers a lot more workers compensation claims especially as sort of defensive claims against performance management i think you know, if I had to sort of put my finger on why it is, you know, I, I think a little bit is economic stress, both private economic stress at home um, with rising mortgage rates, but also, you know, increasing cost of uh, inputs, uh, wages have been going up and just general inputs into industry. And so it just seems like it's been a really sort of hard last six months and I'm I was sort of hoping that um you know two or three weeks off over Christmas might refresh everyone and bring them back but I just I feel like 2024 is going to start hard again um one of the things that we've seen around this I think has been a lot more terminations especially towards the end of the year a lot more redundancies a lot more employers right sizing um trying to get their uh, input costs right um, the, the other thing that I think is causing um, difficulty for business is the um, just the introduction of more and more complexity in this employment space. Like we just see constant amendments to legislation. A lot of these are untested. So for instance, I'm getting a lot of questions right now about fixed term contracts. Um, you know, what are the exceptions? And having a look at some of the exceptions, they're pretty broadly worded, so you don't know what the commission is going to do about it until that's tested. So I imagine we're going to see some case law next year about um, fixed-term contracts and the exceptions. Um, and I think it's a, it, it was an odd um, amendment to make by the government because, you, you know, they're obviously trying to create permanency in employment, but I think it's going to create as many problems as it 
fixes. And and I um, think they come, I think too, some of the confusion, like you're saying, comes from the fact that established employment law concepts like what's a fixed term employee, what's a casual employee, what's an independent contractor, um, that have been considered and um, refined by the High Court, for example, are now being proposed to be reversed to, to go back to old principles after we understood this was all simplified and clarified by judicial decisions. And now we're moving, which I'll talk about in a little bit, into a new space where everything that was old has become new again. And for those employers that have constructed their organisation based on what their understanding of the law was, are going to potentially have to deconstruct it. Yeah, 100%, Poe. And like we saw it in the Mondelez decision where everyone had to quickly go and revisit their payroll. We've seen it in the contractor space. We've seen it in the casual space recently. And employers have to go and get their heads around things, work out whether they're going to employ people in a casualised way or not. And then suddenly, either a high court or the legislature changed things, you know, every few years. And then you have to reset again and go back to, um, you know, back to where you were. So it's it's getting more and more complex. I think um, the, we, and we saw the fixed term contract information statement dropped on the 6th of December. So people need to be using them. And I think it's going to catch a few employers by surprise who um, will realise that they've got a permanent employee and not a, a fixed term one. Um, so yeah. you can expect as employee representatives um, catch on to this, there'll be more of uh, more more complaints about that and um, and potential civil penalties. Um, the positive duty legislation, which is which was sort of brought in a year ago, but it now has its teeth as of yesterday. So the Human Rights Commission, I think, is going to start getting into that. And my my sort of ad hoc survey of my clients is that a lot of them haven't really started addressing that in the way that they should yet, as in, you know, and especially the bigger clients where there's going to be an expectation by um, the Human Rights Commission that more is going to need to be done than in smaller employers. Um, and, you know, and I think also with the introduction of these various rights, like the new ability to complain about flexible working arrangements, um, new stop sexual harassment, there's a lot more uh, remedies available to employees and a lot more complaint mechanisms. And I think that's gonna lead to a sort of 2024 that's gonna be peppered with more general protections claims because once you get more workplace rights, um, you're gonna get more people saying, well, the reason something happened to me was because I complained about a workplace right or I made this complaint or... Um, so I, I think... I think the workplace delegate rights too that were passed yep. last week, which there's not a lot of commentary on that, but um, union members in the workforce now have a significant range of rights to represent union workers and non-union workers and um, meet with the employer and we're going to see more time spent in some businesses on union related um, interests um, which you know cynically detracts from productivity of the employer's business 
not saying there shouldn't be rights for employees to advocate, you know, for employment rights, of course, but these themselves, these delegate rights themselves are workplace rights. And so if you, if you hamper a workplace delegate in carrying out their delegate rights, you've, you've sort of got yourself in a situation where you potentially breached a workplace right and that could be adverse action. So I haven't added it up, but the new delegate rights potentially create, you know, 15 new sort of workplace rights that can be contested by um, a union member in the workforce if they really wanted to. And may well, and may well it will happen. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a lot. Um, I think um, we, we do quite a lot of work for global entities as well. And I think um, uh, explaining some of the changes that are happening here makes you sort of, and our level of regulation compared to the rest of the world is making, slowly making this a less attractive place to engage human resources. So I think that's something to watch as well. Just it really is getting so complex. Like even as, I, I mean, I've got to watch Paul's IR insights. Uh, to, keep, <laughs> to stay up to date. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to keep on top of it is is uh, pretty hard. And, and we're in this space 24 seven. If you're involved in, you know, if you only had part time or no HR function or whatever, it'd be almost impossible to keep on top of everything that's happening and make sure you're nuancing everything you're doing in the right way. Oh, totally. I think I said on LinkedIn last week that the um, Fair Work Act is now more complicated than the tax legislation in Australia. Mm-hmm. I did get trolled by a few tax lawyers, but um, ah. it's it's certainly getting to that. I mean, how long is it now? Two and a half, three thousand pages or something. So, yeah, this, there's a lot of regulation in there. Yeah, and a, and a lot of history too. Like the thing about the fair work system and the industrial relations system is a lot of the awards have this elaborate industrial history that goes back to the 30s or the 40s or the 60s, and you sometimes have to dig back there to find um, the genesis of the meaning of different terms and so it's actually even more complex than um, just looking at the legislation makes you think it sort of first appears. So, yeah, so that, they're really my sort of observations about um, this year and where things are going, but I think it's going to be an interesting time ahead for a little while and I can't see that having seen the sort of split of the bill last week and the sneaky um, you know, same work for same pay and those sorts of things go through. Last week, I can see the Albanese government's going to continue to try and chip away. And so I think we're going to see more legislation next year, including the balance of the closing the loopholes bill. Um, so, and but there's, there's just going to be constant activity in the space under this government, I think. Mm, yeah. Yeah, look, it's um, a lot of work for us and our listeners um, to 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 grapple with, and um, I think there's there's more to come. So, I guess from me, in terms of what I've seen coming through, I've seen a lot of um, uh, stress and burnout in the workplace, and Nick, you were referring to that as well. A lot of mental illness amongst employees um, who unfortunately, sometimes use the litigation process to achieve their desired 
sense of justice, they're really the most difficult ones to, to settle. So if I think about some of the really complicated adverse action matters I've had for employers in 2023, um, there's been a strong mental health aspect to the applicant uh, and they won't give up and they're often self-represented and um, incoherent and want and seek nothing other than unequivocal vindication. They don't even want money. So sometimes it's very difficult even to settle when that's what the employer wants to do. It is a cost-free jurisdiction in the fair work, um, uh, uh, fair work lists in the federal circuit court and the federal court. And so unfortunately that does really leave not a lot of remedies for employers other than to, to try and defend these matters. So apparently, according to a survey I looked at, 49% of employees are feeling stressed and burnt out in the workplace in Australia. Uh, survey by Deloitte conducted by uh, relating to 1,000 full-time adult employees recently found that 32% of employees say that their work commitments infringe upon their family uh, personal commitments. 25% say they often feel stressed at work. Um, a lot of people saying also, now this might be consequence of being in, particularly in Victoria, lockdowns for a long period of time and then coming back into the workplace with dealing with people face to face rather than on, on Zoom. Uh, a lot of people are saying that the sorts of situations they find most stressful in the workplace include um, challenging workloads, long hours and juggling multiple responsibilities. Conflict with colleagues, like being reprimanded or delivering, delivering difficult messages or having difficult conversations. And that's a big one that I've noticed with clients, um, a reluctance of management and executive to have difficult conversations face-to-face -face with, with people. Um, rarely do problems solve themselves uh, without a, a conversation. Uh, situations like um, doing urgent and critical projects is causing 46% of people um, stress and anxiety. And face-to-face -face interactions like delivering presentations or meetings to new stakeholders is causing a lot of stress for people. Um, so that's certainly one area that we need to grapple with. Obviously, if people are experiencing stress and anxiety in the workplace, uh, I'm certainly a big supporter of independent medical examinations and not for any punitive reason, but from a work health and safety perspective, ensuring that uh, employees are psychologically fit to do the job that they're employed to do and considering reasonable adjustments that might support those people to do the job that they need to do. Now, in some cases, sadly, Physically or psychologically, some workers are not fit to perform the inherent requirements of the role. And if medical evidence supports that, uh, then a legal strategy can be built around that, uh, which would conclude their employment and is a defensible basis under discrimination laws. See quite a lot of that, have, have seen quite a lot of that in various different sectors uh, over the last 12 months, particularly the education sector too. Teachers are massively stressed out uh, at the moment for totally understandable reasons. Um, 
So look, I expect that to continue in 2024. Diversity and inclusion um, is an interesting one too. We have more clients asking for diversity and inclusion policies. Uh, interested to know how many of our clients might have those. They're certainly not as common as, um, you know, acceptable workplace policies, bullying policies, things like that, but it's becoming increasingly more important for people to feel safe and accepted in the workplace. I saw a recent um, survey that found that 64% of employees don't feel comfortable being themselves at work, which I, I thought was a really shocking, shockingly high statistic. Uh, I know here at, here at Denton's, we have a, a very broadly um, broadcast diversity and inclusion policy. We have a diversity and inclusion manager on our global board. All decisions made by our global board are considered by our DNI um, person globally, and that filters down locally. So that's a bit of a um, tip that I've got for our for our listeners and, and viewers. Do you have a DNI policy? Um, should you have a DNI policy? And what's in it? So. You know, to me, it should cover a statement of your um, values, the importance of DNI in the workplace, who's responsible for ensuring DNI, and how it applies in the context of hiring, training, and career advancement, and and what are the support services you have in place for uh, for that? Because certainly, interestingly, I'm finding more and more people are self-identifying within. LGBTQ plus categories during the recruitment process. And uh, we all know with a great resignation how difficult it is to attract and keep quality candidates. So if it's clear you don't have a focus on DNI in your organisation, then that's going to be a, an issue when it comes to recruitment and retention. So I think that's an interesting one. I referred to the workplace delegate um, uh, laws that have now passed um, and I expect that we're going to see those pop up in more sort of adverse action type situations but the, I think the message is that doesn't mean that you shouldn't manage performance and conduct issues that arise in the context of a workplace delegate being a union member carrying out their workplace delegate role if in the context of doing so, they breach a code of conduct or they behave in an offensive way or breach another workplace policy. So this is going to take us back to um, Bendigo Bank, uh, uh, I think it's Bendigo, Bendigo TAFE, the Bendigo TAFE case in the High Court, which found that you can separate out workplace rights uh, from disciplinary action and that a union member is not immune and protected from disciplinary action if um, while carrying out their union activities they've breached a code of conduct or a term of a contract so i'm pretty certain the unions would like to unwind the bendigo tafe decision and um, have that re-looked at my prediction it may not be 2024 it may be beyond is that there'll be new, a new high court challenge to that reasoning and the new workplace delegate laws with a range of protections um, do provide an avenue for further exploration of those sorts of issues in the workplace. So again, 
this is going to make it really difficult for employers, but um, this is the landscape that uh, that we're in under this government with, with these proposed amendments. But I will say, as I often do say to clients, that doesn't mean you can't and shouldn't dismiss people for substantiated misconduct. And just looking quickly at the statistics from the Fair Work Commission, which we like to um, tell our clients about because it's quite revealing, only 5.6% of employees were reinstated in the last 12 months, uh, those protected by unfair dismissal. So whilst it is the primary remedy under the Fair Work Act for unfair dismissal, 5.6 is a very small percentage of reinstatement. So therefore, what is happening? They're being compensated for findings of unfair dismissal where that occurs. But the median compensation is only $8,704. So we're not talking about a hugely expensive jurisdiction. Uh, you know, legal fees to defend it will be more expensive than the compensation. Thinking of conciliations, where we spend a lot of our time for clients, 80% of matters settle at Fair Work conciliations, according to the Fair Work Commission annual report. 47% settle for less than $4,000. 77% settle for less than $8,000. In relation to general protections, adverse action matters, 45% settle for $4,000 or less. 84% settle for under 20,000. So whilst we do tend to see the very difficult matters that don't always fall within that bracket uh, and involve perhaps employees with personalities that are much more difficult than your standard employee that has emotional intelligence and self-reflection and realizes that perhaps their aspirations are best served by going to work for somebody else rather than sue their employer, um, the numbers sort of speak for themselves. So it's not necessarily that employers should be terrified of acting where there's substantiated evidence of wrongdoing or misconduct. Um, another area that I've seen a lot of this year with the, the matters that have come to our attention here in Victoria, uh, bullying cases. We've had quite a few um, bullying matters in the Fair Work Commission and often involving employees that are very interpret bullying as a very subjective term. And we know legally it is an objective term, of course. These are the hardest ones to settle because, uh, as I was saying, you know, these are very self righteous employees who they really just want vindication that they've been bullied, even if objectively that's not what's happened. So workplace change is often difficult, but that doesn't mean it amounts to bullying is something the Fair Work Commission will often say. And I think it's important for employers to reframe some of the language that might um, be used by people alleging bullying at the time that it's made to determine if it even fits within your policy. It's not always the best strategy to say, oh, so-and-so has made a bullying complaint. We have to immediately engage an external investigator to investigate that matter. Sometimes mediations might be uh, appropriate. They tend not to work in my experience, um, but if the trust and confidence is broken, then a mediation is going to be difficult um, to be successful in. But uh, I think, unfortunately, possibly linked to the mental health issues I was referring to, 
Um, those very subjective claims of bullying, I, th I expect will continue in 2024. Um, in terms of other like more immediate issues to, to think about in 2024, as I referred to before, the definition of a casual employee, uh, this is being turned on its head. So the High Court basically said uh, in some recent cases that uh, if your contract of employment says you're a casual employee, then you're a casual employee. And what happens after you sign that contract is not necessarily going to change that definition unless there's some sort of fraud uh, uh, involved uh, in that um, in in the contract, but amendments to the Fair Work Act that are proposed for early next year will go go back to the definition that we had in the past, which will look at things like currently sort of undefined concepts, but terms like the true nature of each casual employee's circumstances. It will, will require employers to look at complex definitions based on the absence of something. So uh, the absence of a future advanced commitment will be necessary to classify casuals. There'll be a multifactorial test of relevant considerations, none of which are decisive, but any of which uh, could um, be relevant in a given case. The legislation refers to terms undefined like real substance, practical reality, true nature, regular but not uniform. So there's going to be a lot left to employers when deciding who's casual and uh, and who's not. So what does that actually mean for our clients that have large casual workforces? It is, I think, going to really drive uncertainty and insecurity. So. Employers will look to avoid regular patterns of work. They'll avoid future commitments. So those employees who enjoy and want regular casual employment, and there are many of them, may find that they have uh, sporadic uh, engagements and no commitment as to future work arrangements and irregular patterns of work. Uh, and it's likely we may see increased turnover of casual employees. So yes, whilst accepting it can be misused in some sectors, there are many sectors where casual employees are happy being casual employees and it works well for everybody. So there's gonna be a level of disruption uh, introduced into the arrangement uh, next year if those laws are passed. Um, it's a bit of an interesting one, but something that I'm starting to see emerging is deep fakes. Deep fakes in the workplace where the technology is advancing. I won't mention the name of the app because I don't want anybody to misuse it, but there's an app where you can put your face on the body of a celebrity in a whole range of circumstances. It might be an athlete, sports person, a singer, an actor, um, and using that app uh, create um, situations where your boss or your colleague uh, looks like they're doing something that a celebrity has done or, or, or a porn star has done or an athlete has done uh, or a politician has done but is not actually them. This is starting to emerge in the United States as a, as a workplace uh, issue. 
And there's a class action pending in the United States at the moment, which has been brought by a big brother contestant uh, who discovered that um, his likeness and voice was being used in one of these um, deep fake apps. And he, without his consent, he wasn't paid for it. Um, and so it'll be interesting to watch that. But I think in the meantime, HR should be aware of what deep fake technology is, how it's starting to be used and misused, uh, how it can, you can think of a situation where a pornographic image could be circulated in the workplace with a colleague's face on it. I mean, that that is likely to breach sexual harassment laws. Do your policies adequately covered, cover that sort of technology, which is largely unregulated in Australia at the moment? Um, union empowerment, I think, is another um, area to watch. So only 8.2% of the workforce are union members at the moment. The new workplace delegate laws are aimed at driving that number up. Um, what is a workplace delegate? The laws say that just passed last week, a workplace delegate is an employee or worker who is appointed or elected under the rules of their union to represent members in a particular enterprise. The, the rights of uh, workplace delegates will be to represent members and non-members who are eligible to join the union, reasonable communication by un uh, union members with prospective members, reasonable access by unions to the employer's facilities, and reasonable access for employees to paid delegate training leave. There's no cap on the number of workplace delegates that there can be in a workplace. So you can imagine if uh, 50 of your employees nominate themselves as a workplace delegate and they all want union training and they all want involvement in issues affecting the employee's enterprise, how is that going to be managed remembering it's a workplace right now to be a workplace delegate um, if you fit within that description. So I think the right to represent and speak on behalf of all workers eligible to join a union is um, going to be a really interesting issue for some of our clients in some sectors next year. Now, the, the implications of that in terms of what, what what is that going to mean? My predictions are that it will increase uh, union at the time that union business is is focused on in a workplace obviously detracting from what employees are actually paid to do. And um, uh, that's gonna be a challenge in terms of how that is managed. Expect to see more delegates on the workplace floor, expect to see more interruption in the workplace. Uh, Non-union members will be caught up um, in, in all of this. And then as I referred to before, the question of discipline how do you discipline a workplace uh, delegate that's performing these functions? This will raise the issues in, um, I think I said Bendigo TAFE before, but it's Barclay and Bendigo Bank. Um, so that'll be, that'll be really interesting. Employee versus contractor is another issue um, that employers are gonna have to face in 2024. Proposed uh, laws before parliament um, intend to reverse the current definition that's come from the High Court in the um, 
uh, JAMSEC case around what is the definition of an independent contractor. Uh, and basically where a written independent contractor agreement exists, according to the High Court, that defines someone as an independent contractor, then unless it's a sham, the person is an independent contractor, irrespective of what happens after they commence. The proposals to the Fair Work Act will um, reverse that and a little bit like the casual definition, we'll look at concepts like the real substance, practical reality and true nature of the relationship between the parties. Um, so it's not just the terms of the contract that will be relevant under this new test, but the manner of the performance of the contract um, that will be taken into account. So post contract conduct, if passed by these new laws will be relevant. So we'll go back to the old multifactorial test with independent contractors. So there's a lot to think about there. Nick, Nick and Ruth, um, any more predictions uh, from you for 2024? Uh, just one, um, I guess, note of optimism. Um, we've been talking a lot about sort of challenges and increased regulation today and um, it's sort of a difficult year ahead. Um, I just wanted to sound a note of optimism for those um, uh, in, in the business and HR practitioners who are interested in um, affecting workplace or change to workplace culture and inter interested in workplace cultural issues. I think there's been some changes um, to regulation that will assist um, those practitioners to, um, I guess, um, get senior management buy-in uh, in relation to um, uh, looking, at, looking at what goes on in the workplace identifying risks to psychological health, and Paul, you touched upon a number of those today, and looking at way the systems of work that create risks to health and safety of employees and um, ways in which those um, risks can be eliminated. So this is all around the workplace health and safety, psychosocial risks area. So that regulation has been in for a couple of years. Um, there's sort of reason to suggest that employers are not kind of on top of their obligations in that area just yet. In addition, we've got the recent changes to the Sex Discrimination Act introducing a positive duty on employers to take reasonable measures to eliminate sex discrimination. But those two are sort of broadly aligned in terms of what employers are required to do, and it involves taking a proactive approach. So it's not just about putting in place policies, it's actually about engaging with employees, working out where the risks are in an organisation and um, putting in measures to, I guess, eliminate um, uh, risks where possible. So introducing control measures and that sort of thing. And, and I think those things are broadly aligned to sort of broader workplace cultural issues. And now um, practitioners have, I guess, an opportunity to say to senior managers, this is no longer a nice to have. We need to start doing something about this. So it gives people who are interested in this area, the impetus to, I guess, um, get these issues looked at by senior man management and take responsibility for it. So more, so challenges, challenges for those involved, but I think it, um, you know, can lead to some really positive change in organisations. Mm, yeah. I agree with that, Ruth, and I, I like ending on a positive note. That was good. Um, 
Uh, we just saw a question in the chat about AI, and I think one of the, I think it is a really interesting issue and certainly something that Denton's internally are looking at how we use AI to automate processes. And I think the more the government does make it difficult by fiddling around with um, the use of casuals, the use of contractors and fixed term contracts, the more they're going to push people into looking for um, offshoring, AI, robots, all sorts of other things to avoid the complexity of hiring here. If you can't hire in a flexible way and everyone has to be full-time, not a contractor, not a casual, not fixed term, it's going to mean people are going to find other ways to work around it. And AI, I think, is, is going to be potentially a massive thing next year and also lead to a lot of issues as well. You know, it leads, it leads to senior deep fakes and all sorts of issues. And we've seen AI being used for legal submissions in the States where they've referred to cases from like Legally Blonde and stuff like that and people have uh, put them in court. So not not something we intend to be using here on your advices soon. Um, I do, I know we're getting close to time, so I'm going to say my last little thing. I just do want to say it's been an absolute privilege to work with Ruth and her team uh, in Sydney this year and with Paul and his team in Melbourne and an absolute privilege to work for all of our clients. We really love what we do and we love working with you and wish you all the very best for um, uh, hopefully a restful break over the holiday and a lovely positive 2024 as uh, reinforced by Ruth. So all the best and I'll hand back to you, Paul. Thanks so much, um, Nick and Ruth. And uh, yes, thank you to all of our listeners. We have several hundred people each month now um, uh, log in and view live or after the after the date our webinars. So they'll very shortly be all uploaded on Apple Podcasts, which is um, which is also awesome. And we've got our schedule for the first six months of next year. So we're really looking forward to that. Thanks everybody for joining today. And as Nick said, ha have a wonderful break and we look forward to seeing you in 2024. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye.